0: This morning's scripture reading is found in Luke chapter 24, verses one through 12. Please stand. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, bowed to their faces to the ground. The men said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men? And they did not believe them, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. You may be seated.
1: Christ is risen. Thank you. A little slow. Little slow on the update. Christ is risen. For a second, I thought I wasn't in a Baptist church. <laughs> well, it is, it is great to gather with you once again. It is wonderful to be able to finish the story that we began Friday evening. After taking so much time to, to meditate on the suffering and the death of Christ, it is extremely satisfying to read the account of his resurrection as we do, we, we try to put ourselves in the shoes or in the place of the disciples when they heard this good news. To put ourselves in the sandals of Peter. This man who was desperate for redemption after denying his Savior three times. To see him, to read of him, going seeing the empty tomb. You can imagine that hope that had died within him being kindled again. It is hard for us to imagine any possible darker time that there could ever have been for Jesus' followers in those hours and days after his crucifixion. I don't think we can fathom how defeated they must have felt, how hopeless they were. This man that they had followed for years, this man they had left everything behind to follow, had been nailed to a cross and killed in a way that had been reserved only for the greatest criminals. We have a difficult time comprehending what the disciples endured in the time between the death and the resurrection of Christ. Of course, it's obvious why we have trouble empathizing with them. We know the rest of the story. Rather than empathize with their heartaches, when we read these accounts, We just want to spur them on to the end. We want to be able to pull them into the excitement and anticipation of what was about to happen. But it's true. We know the end of the story. We feel the need to try and comfort these men in their darkest hour with the wonderful news that was about to happen. But what is also true is that we often forget just how much of our faith and our hope is completely dependent on the resurrection of Christ. We have never known the hopelessness that a dead and buried Savior would bring to somebody. So the significance of this is often lost on us. And we fail to realize, without the resurrection that nothing of the gospel story that we hold so dear would be possible. See, the disciples had placed their hope in what Jesus was going to do in this life on the earth in front of them. That he would go to Jerusalem and rally the masses, what, what the masses wanted him to do as the conquering king. They believed he was going to establish God's kingdom in Jerusalem to overthrow the Romans. That Israel would once again have her own king on the throne in the city of David. And even though Jesus had alluded and outright spoke of his death multiple times throughout the Gospels, they couldn't understand what he was talking about until after all these events had taken place. So the disciples had their eyes on an immediate and a local kingdom. That's what they believed all the prophecies pointed to, an immediate and local kingdom. Yet Christ had eyes for the entire world. It was not enough that Jerusalem or the, city, the area of Judea would worship God. Christ had his eyes on the entire world, that his kingdom would extend over all nations and all peoples, not just for that generation, but for every generation to follow. When Jesus was delivered into the hands of the Romans, when he was sentenced to death and mocked, abused, ridiculed, nailed to the cross, everything that he had promised, everything that he had said or done on this earth, was undone. At least that's what it looked like to the disciples. And while the masses turned away from Jesus, when they realized that he was dead, that they, he wouldn't give them what they were wanting right now, the masses of the people turned from him. Yet the disciples could not just simply turn away. They loved him. They truly cared for him. They had become dependent on him. They had nowhere else to go because they had left everything for him. Remember, Jesus was more than just a teacher to these disciples. He was their friend. He was their brother. So they suffered not only the shame of apparently backing another in a long line of false messiahs, But they also suffered the loss of their closest and most faithful friend. Their hope was gone. It was buried in that tomb. But thankfully, for them and for us, whatever kept them from remembering the words of Christ and understanding the events that were taking place did not harden them against Christ did not harden them in unbelief. The days of their agony were short, and their Lord and friend once again walked among them. Then they understood and they believed. I'll ask you to join me in prayer one more time. Father, I pray that you would Help us to grasp the wonder, the centrality of the resurrection of your Son. Like the disciples, we so easily forget what we have been told. We so easily glaze over things and don't comprehend the meaning and the importance of what is in front of our eyes. Father, help us to see. Help us to see the wonder of Christ resurrected from the dead. The wonder of a a savior and king who defeated death never again to taste its bitterness. Who stands and reigns eternal. Father, help us understand more of what our Savior has done for us. And may it fuel our worship of him, our devotion to him, for his glory and for our good. We come to you as in all things in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to look at just how indispensable the resurrection of Jesus is to everything that we believe and to everything that we hope in. The resurrection is an event that no matter how much attention we give to it, no, no matter how much importance we attach to it, we will always fall short of capturing its significance. Even, even so, we are going to work and we will try to stand closer to the reality of understanding what it means, the significance of the resurrection. We want to stand closer to that reality when we leave than when we arrived. We're going to look at the resurrection as the proof of Jesus' authority. We're going to look at it as the vindication of Jesus and all who have trusted in him. We're going to review Paul's claim that the resurrection is a matter of first importance. And then we will look at the place of the resurrection in our being united to Christ and our new birth. Let's start with the resurrection as the proof of Jesus' authority. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Chapter 10, starting in verse 7. So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Well, Jesus spoke as being the one way to the father. He spoke as being the only door for the sheep that he, he was, and he is the true shepherd, the true owner of the flock. And as proof for that, he claimed that he had the authority to lay down his life and to take his life back up again. His claim of being the good shepherd, separating himself from all the thieves and robbers that had come before, was that he would lay his life down for his sheep. He would keep and protect his sheep. He wouldn't abandon them to harm when danger came near. His ability to follow through with the authority he claimed to possess was the proof of his message. The proof that he was the one way that he could keep the sheep, the proof that the sheep would hear his voice and know him. He wasn't just making some nice platitudes about being able, being willing to sacrifice his own comfort and desires to serve others. He really did face the great threat of his flock. He really did lay down his life for them. Yet simply sacrificing himself and dying was not enough. Anybody can die. Everyone dies. Jesus proved himself to his sheep by doing what he said he had the authority to do. Something that nobody else is able to do. He rose from the dead and he lives to call out to all who will hear his voice. No one could take his life. Scripture is very clear about that. It was Jesus who offered himself up. It Jesus who laid down his life. Jesus who, claimed, who rose back to life. It was under his authority according to the predetermined plan of the Father. Nobody could take his life. Of course, this wasn't the only time that Jesus would indicate that his resurrection would prove his authority behind the claims that he would make. We turn back forward a little bit in John to John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. This has taken place during one of Jesus' travels to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, where he was consumed with rage over what he found in the house of the Lord. It says the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus' zeal threw him into rage because of what he saw, because of the mockery that men had made out of the house of prayer, the house of worship to his father. And when he did that, the Jewish leaders responded with, Give us a sign. By what authority do you challenge what we have established in this place? And the answer he gave was the simple promise that if they destroyed the temple, meaning his body, he would raise it up again in three days. Of course, they mocked him. They thought he was talking about the building, yet his resurrection vindicated his statement. His resurrection was proof that he did have the authority to speak to what was proper worship of the Father that he had the authority to mandate just how the Father was to be worshipped, how the people were to approach the Father. His resurrection proved his tie to the Father, and it proved the Father's approval and agreement of what Jesus did and said while he walked this earth. The resurrection also served as the ultimate vindication of everything that Jesus had done and everything that he had said. Even from the beginning of the church, Christ's resurrection was used as vindication for his disciples and as a rebuke against the Jews who had denied him. Jesus had been a regular target from the Jewish religious leaders and political leaders as they attempted to discredit him, as they worked tirelessly to try and limit the damage that he was doing to their influence, to their positions of authority among the people. Because people were flocking all around to see him, to witness his miracles. Well, ultimately... The Jewish leaders were successful at turning the masses against him. Even to the point where they would partner with the hated Romans. And they found a way to quiet this wandering preacher from Nazareth. They were able to harden the masses of the people against Jesus. Harden them so much against Christ that they cried out in mass, his blood be upon us and our children. Beloved, the crucifixion of God's Messiah was the ultimate act of rebellion and the breaking of faith by the nation of Israel. This nation that God had called to himself and rescued her out of captivity The crucifixion of the Messiah was the point of no return for the nation. Even when those same people who were disbelieving the claims of Jesus, who were mocking him as he was tortured and beaten, and who willingly said to put his blood on their own conscience, they could not and they would not believe When they either witnessed Christ themselves or came into contact with the many credible witnesses of his resurrection. The nation as a whole could not and would not repent and believe. Even so, the apostles did not shy away from pointing to Jesus' crucifixion as the great act of rebellion of the people, and his resurrection as the capstone of his life and his ministry. It was the vindication of everything that Jesus claimed to be. At Pentecost after the Spirit was visibly moving among them to the point where strangers were seeing what was going on and thinking they were drunk because these men were acting in bizarre ways as, as the Spirit came among them. Peter proclaimed that the prophecy of Joel was being fulfilled before their very eyes, claiming that Scripture had been fulfilled and was being fulfilled among them. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2, he didn't hold back any punches. He reminded his audience that even though Jesus had performed many miracles and wonders among them, even though he had walked and only told them things of God, told them things that were true and helpful and healed the sick, even though all those things were true about him, they had handed him over to be crucified, that they had killed God's Messiah. We'll turn with over to Acts chapter 2, we'll start in verse 22. So directly after John. Acts 2, starting in 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Peter understood that the resurrection of Christ proved his message, proved his works on this earth. That the resurrection was the capstone of the gospel message. It vindicated Christ and his followers against all the abuse that they had received at the hands of the apostate Jews. The resurrection of Christ was the proof That he and his disciples, they were not the ones who had abandoned the faith of their fathers for a new religion. No, they actually had been the fulfillment. Christ, his resurrection proved he was the fulfillment of the hope of their fathers those Jews who rejected the Messiah, they were the ones who spurned the hope of their ancestors. They were the ones who spurned the faith of the patriarchs. They were the ones who broke the covenant with God. They were the ones who abandoned the faith. Jesus' resurrection was vindication of himself and those who had trusted in God in the past. Peter used the example of David and what he, was, what he had prophesied concerning his descendant that would sit on the throne. So still in Acts chapter 2, down to verse 27. And this is quoting David, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One seek corruption. You have made known the path to me, path of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Yes, David did prophesy, yet David died, and his body did undergo decay. Yet even then he was not abandoned because David's hope was looking forward through the spirit. He looked forward, and was able to see the one who would come, who would not be held by death. David's hope in God was vindicated when his long expected heir, the Messiah of Israel rose from the dead. And not only that he was simply rose from the dead, but that he was Hyper-exalted to the right hand of God to reign over all creation. He was hyper-exalted to the right hand of God. His dominion is more vast, more secure than anything David could possibly have imagined or hoped for his lineage. His descendant raised to glory, never to taste death again. His rule never to end. Let's continue in that passage in Acts, starting in verse 34 of chapter 2. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. For all that we think of Peter's cowardice in denying his Savior, he was bold to stand before the Jews and name the glory of Christ and the blame at their feet for crucifying him. David's faith in God was vindicated when Jesus rose from the dead. And so was the faith of every other saint who had been born and died without seeing the revelation of the true source of their hope, the true object of their faith. And for us who live after these events have all taken place, Christ's resurrection remains our vindication. Knowing the whole story makes the the reality of these events no less pivotal and glorious. Our hope is still anchored by the resurrection of Christ. I think it's virtually impossible to overstate the importance of Christ's resurrection to our faith and our hope. Paul understood that everything for the Christian, everything for them, hinged on this real and powerful event. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, as we're going to work our way through Paul's greatest defense of the importance of Jesus' resurrection to those who believe. Acts, then Romans, then 1 Corinthians i to start in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul is very clear that the the death and the resurrection of Christ Is of first importance, of the highest importance to the Christian. The real, literal, physical resurrection of Christ is of first importance. Paul left no room for any interpretation that places the resurrection as something that is just spiritual, some metaphysical or figurative kind of expression. Of God's favor. Now it is of first importance that Jesus did physically rise from the dead. He was very much dead and then he was very much not dead. Not only did he rise from the dead, but he appeared to more than 500 people. It was not something that was limited just to a few people that they could say, well, these, these few people are hysterical. They're so depressed that they've made this up. No, he appeared to more than 500 people. And at the time when these letters and Scripture were being written, many of them were still alive, were still there to be able to verify the accounts of Christ's resurrection. So it would be incontrovertible proof in any just court of law, over 500 witnesses. Paul was correcting false teaching in 1 Corinthians 15 that had entered in the church already. False teaching that denied the resurrection. We're going to continue in verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, How can some of us, so you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about that he raised the Christ. Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Think of what Paul ties to Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, really physically rise from the dead, then your faith is futile. Then you remain in your sins. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything that was promised to be accomplished by his death was proven false. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, then he wasn't who he said he was. And therefore his death was powerless. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then none of us would rise. Death would be the end. No future. No hope. No blessed peace that provides meaning and purpose to the momentary affliction that we experience on this earth. If the one in whom we put our faith is proven false, then our faith is a lie. And all that we suffer on account of our faith is a waste. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead... Then all this this radical obedience that we have been talking about as we have been preaching through Matthew, these radical things that it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the radical obedience that is required in following Christ, leaving everything behind, forsaking everything on this earth to follow him. All of that sacrifice is for naught. And we are above all men to be pitied if Christ did not rise again. Because beloved, we do not live for the here and now. Our hope is a future hope. Our strength and our purpose are based on what will be, on what God is doing. That one day we will be glorified. We will be present with our father in heaven. We will be able to bow at the feet of Christ. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then our faith and our hope are lies in every one of our struggles in this life are in vain. Paul continued in verse 20. But if, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then his coming, at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Yes, if Christ did not raise, then everything would fall apart. Yet praise God, it is true. All of it is true. Jesus has, in fact, been raised from the dead. And just as we all died in Adam, so in Christ we are made new. In Christ we are given life. Love at our culture, especially in modern academia, would tell us that we don't need to hold on to silly superstitions of a more ignorant people in the past. They would tell us that our faith would be just as useful to our lives if we stopped holding on to those myths. The reality is without the supernatural and impossible events that surround the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our faith would be completely worthless. It is these crucial aspects of our faith that the world works so hard to cause us to abandon, and yet they are the very foundation of it all. The power of our religion, the power of our faith, is not in right action in our success on earth, but is solely and completely in Christ, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So, what is the gospel? What is the power of God that Paul says is for our salvation? Our salvation is our being united with Christ. Our union with Christ is our salvation. It is our forgiveness of sins, it is our reconciliation with God, it is our righteousness, it is our hope, it is our future. After all, what is faith but the mechanism whereby God brings about our union with Christ? So, yes, we are saved by faith because it is by faith that we are made united with Christ. It's by faith we are saved because by faith we are in Christ Paul tells us in Romans 6, 4, and 5, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In being united to Christ, his death is our death, our death to sin, our death to the corruption of this flesh, to the penalty of the law. His life is our life. His righteousness is our righteousness. As we read in Colossians 3 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We no longer stand before God in our own strength, in our own merit. Beloved, there is no more hopeless place to stand than before the Holy God in your own strength and on your own merit. Our very lives are hidden in Christ. Our salvation, our hope, our glory is tied to that of Jesus. We could have no greater assurance of the salvation that God has promised us In Galatians 2.20, Paul declared the wonder of our being united to Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Everything that we have before God, we have because we have been united with Christ. That he has taken away our sins. That he has given us his righteousness. Our very life is in Christ. This is the wonder of our salvation. Well, we have looked at a number of passages that speak of the life that we have in Christ the new life that is the result of our being born again. As a baby, we came into this world. We came into this world in the flesh according to the will of our parents. And in Christ, we are born again according to the will of God. It says that clearly in John 1. Well, turn with me to First Peter three, or First Peter one, verses three through five. Hebrews, James, and then First Peter. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? Well, at least in Baptist circles, it's become so natural for us to speak of being born again that I doubt we very often stop to think about just what that means. According to Peter, it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ... It's through that resurrection that God causes us to be born again to a living hope. But just what is that new birth? Well, in John 3, Jesus told the Pharisee Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So yes, Nicodemus had eyes, but the things of God, he could not see. The the reality of the spiritual realm, he could not see. There was a veil that covered his face, and he couldn't see the kingdom of heaven, even though it was at hand in Christ. He did not understand what Jesus was telling him. Jesus continued in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Of course, if you remember that that passage, Nicodemus gets very confused. He still doesn't get it. How could I possibly enter back into the womb of my mother? He is confused, his eyes were veiled. Our spiritual life is totally dependent on being born again. And as John wrote, not of the will of man or the will of the flesh, but of the will of God. As long as we were spiritually dead, and that's what we were before we were born again, as long as we were spiritually dead, our wills and our desires were completely set against the things of God. Beloved Remember this that our spiritual life is just as dependent on the work of God as our physical life was upon the work of our parents. When we had no life, our parents gave us life. When we had no spiritual life, God made us alive. So that in Christ, we are in fact new creations. The great wonder of this new life is that God did this for us while we were yet his enemies. He loved us and he had mercy on us while we hated him and while we reviled him. When we only deserved death and wrath, instead, he gave us life. He opened our eyes that we might see. And it is no wonder that once our eyes were opened, that we ran as fast as we could into the loving arms of our Father in heaven. Well, Ezekiel was given these words considering that new life that God would use to bring his people in a new relationship with him in the new covenants. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. He says, I will give you a new heart and I will place And a new spirit I will place within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Well, this is just another picture that is used to give us an understanding of the new life that we have in Christ. By nature, we were spiritually dead. By nature, we had a heart of stone. Yet God causes us to be born again. He gives us a new heart, gives us new life. Well, turn with me to Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Or if you've already had this memorized as our monthly scripture memory passage, that I even invite you to read along with me. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7. Definitely not in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We were made alive in Christ while we were yet dead in our trespasses. It was not anything in us that caused us to be born again. This point is made perfectly clear in all the different ways that scripture gives us to picture our new birth, our new life. We were dead and then we were born, given life. We had a heart of stone, then we were given a heart of flesh. We were enemies of God and then we are his friends. It is the new birth that took the veil away. That gave us eyes to be able to see and ears to be able to hear that we might hear the words of Christ and we might see his beauty and with open eyes and eager spirits call out to him in faith that we might be united with him, united with him in death and in his resurrection. In his death, we have the forgiveness of sins. In his resurrection, we have life, new life, abundant life, everlasting life, because he had the authority to take up his life again after he laid it down for us. I am convinced that we cannot overstate the importance of the resurrection of Christ. All of our hope, our future, our eternity is dependent on the life that we have in Christ. The life we have because of his resurrection. It is a source of our new birth, the source of giving us a new heart and making us new creations. On the cross before Jesus yielded his spirit, he cried out, it is finished. His resurrection was then the vindication on this earth And his resurrection gave him the full confidence and authority that he possessed as he entered heaven after ascending from this earth. Psalm 24 has long been understood to relate what took place in heaven at this glorious time after the work of Christ was completed on this earth. And he returned once again to be at the right hand of his father So we're going to read Psalm 24. Definitely not Job 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell within, for he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul up to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, the God of Jacob you know these next few verses just picture christ being able to ascending to heaven once more truly god and truly man lift up your heads o gates be lifted up o ancient doors that the king of glory may come in who is this king of glory the lord strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Jesus is the only man in all of history who will ever enter into the gates of heaven on his own merit. He is the only one who will ever be able to walk through those streets of gold and command worship and adoration. The only one to enter into heaven, the victorious conqueror. He entered the gates of heaven as truly man and truly God. His glory demanded that the gates be opened up wide and that everybody take notice. The king of glory was coming in. The great question to who is this king of glory is for all eternity answered by those who worship before his throne. Those who surround him day and night's. And cry out that he is worthy. Cry out for what he has done for his people. They will cry out, You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. I reflect on this scene in heaven. So I want to remind us exactly to whom we are united, if in fact we have been saved. We are not united in the life and death of a good man or some wise teacher. Not even to somebody who somehow managed to live a sinless life and, and be willing to sacrifice himself for a friend. No, the glory of our salvation is that we have been united to the Son of God whose glory will light the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity that no sun, no moon, no stars will be required. We are united in the death of the Son of God. In the death that only He could die to pay a debt that only He could cover. We are united in the resurrection and the life of the victorious risen King. The one whom death has no longer any hold of. The death itself has been conquered. His death was our death. His life is our life. We who by nature were dead in our sins and at our core enemies of God are now through His wonderful work united with God's own Son, our lives hidden in Him. Beloved, the angels did not wait with eager anticipation to see a salvation unfold that would leave God's people still in bondage. The prophets did not long to see a salvation that men could provide for themselves or a salvation that had no real power and left us as we were. The prophets who were given the message of hope And the one that God would send longed to see the salvation, the wonders of the salvation that was more glorious than they could have imagined. They looked with expectation about how God would save, how he would act in power and truth. Even though they didn't know the fullness of it, their great hope was in Christ. Their great hope was the one who we know by name, who we know by his life, his death, and his resurrection, the one we have been united to. I pray that God would open our eyes to this wonder of what he has done. How many of our struggles in our lives are due to the fact that we simply do not understand what Christ has done and we do not understand what he has promised to continue to do for us? How much do we suffer in this life because of our lack of faith? Right now, he sits at the right hand of the Father. He daily makes intercession for us. His Spirit, our helper, comforts us in our sorrows, strengthens us in our trials, and guides us in this evil and dark world. His work on our behalf did not end at simply taking away the punishment for our sins. He gave us new life. He gave us new life that he himself has promised to live in and through us. We are not left as orphans in this earth, just waiting for this age to end. If it is Christ that lives in us, then the power of his spirit is upon us. And we have the perfect confidence before this creator of the universe, all because he lives. So, beloved, worship him. Worship him. Worship him. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Father, we thank you. We tremble at the wonder of what we have in Christ because of his victory, because of his vindication, his resurrection. We confess we are so utterly dependent, having nothing of ourselves to offer, but clinging solely to Christ and what is ours in him. Father, make this more real before our eyes. Help us to see, to know, and to worship Christ's name. Amen. We we'll turn now again to the table. And as Friday, we took some special emphasis to remember the brokenness of the body of Christ. And yes, we still remember that. But let us give special attention now to the life that we have in him. The life that we have because he was broken, because we cling to his sacrifice as our sacrifice. We cling to his life as our life, his death as our death. So I invite you as you come, to sit and dwell for a moment on the true wonder of this, that out of death came life. Just as the seed of grain needs to die in order to reap a harvest, our Savior died in order to give life and life abundant. So I invite you to come grab of the elements, and we'll take them together in just a moment. We read that as Jesus was sitting with the disciples and eating the meal, Jesus took the bread and after blessing and he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. And because he lives, because he rose again, we do look forward and long to drink it again with him in his father's kingdom. We long for what is promised because we have the proof and the guarantee that all of it will come to pass as it has been promised because he lives. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for vindicating him. For proving that he is all that he said he was. Thank you that we can remember what he has done for us. That our sins are covered. That we have life. We have life, an abundant life. We have a future and a hope. Father, let us see and worship your Son as he is. Pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.